So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Jordan Cornish. I'm one of the producers on Commons. We're on hiatus right now and are working away on our next season of Commons. So in the meantime, I wanted to share with you an interview I did back in April. This was for our season on hockey. I spoke with Jashvina Shaw. Jashvina is a freelance hockey reporter who co-wrote a book with Evan F. Moore called Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture and How to Fix It. This book was an invaluable resource to us during the hockey season. It's a great read. And if you're interested in learning more about the sport, I'd recommend picking it up. In the conversation you're about to hear, we expand on some of what you heard during our hockey season, as well as a bunch of stuff that you didn't. We get into how the organizational structure of hockey contributes to its problems, the impact of billeting on young players, performative PR campaigns, racism, and what solutions we might consider if we really want to reckon with hockey's culture problem. Here it is, my conversation with Jasvina Shaw. I hope you enjoy it. My name is Jashvina Shah. I am a freelance hockey reporter and author. I've been covering hockey for 10 years. And I've also, along that span, covered pretty much every level of men's and women's, boys and girls hockey there is, ranging from high school all the way up to pros. How did you find hockey? Like, how did you uh, become interested in, in this sport? Totally by happenstance. The town that I grew up in, Massachusetts, actually is where a lot of Bruins players lived, but my parents lived in Cleveland, so we were very big football fans, but we were not hockey fans. So my dad's barber at the time actually used to cut hair of players who played for the Bruins. So like he gave my dad in like the 80s or the early 90s a poster of Cam Neely and Ray Bork, which is now in my possession that somehow survived. My dad obviously had no idea who those people were. And then when I was a sophomore in high school, my brother had gone to college and I just thought, you know, I'm being a bad Boston fan. I should really follow the Bruins. So I started by watching the Devils because at that point we were living in New Jersey and I used to sneak because I knew my dad would yell at me because I watched too many sports as it is. Um, I had to kind of sneak in five minutes here and there and he would work from the basement. So I would have to like time it. And if I heard him coming up the stairs, I would have to push it off. So I turned it on for like five minutes and saw, I don't remember who it was, but I saw a devil hit a player who at the time I didn't know who he was, but his name was Sean Avery. And then I turned it off immediately because my dad came upstairs and that pretty much was how it started. And I'm proud to report that my dad is actually a very huge hockey fan now. So I got away with it. You've spent a lot of time reporting on, on hockey in the NCAA, but then deciding to work on this book, like how did that project come together? And what was kind of your decision behind to focus on the toxic culture and how we can fix that? 
on Twitter, there's really only so much space you can dedicate to writing about something. And I mean, even this book wasn't enough to explain things in depth, like each topic could be a book on its own. And I was like, this is ridiculous. There are simple solutions that can be taken to at least start to attack the problems. So I just tweeted like someone should pay me to write a book about hockey culture. And Evan saw my tweet and he messaged me and he said, hey, I saw, I was thinking about doing this. I saw your tweet. Do you want to co-author a book? And I was like, sure. That's how it happened. I mean, one of the things that I I loved about this book and I've been kind of desperately looking for and was really grateful to find in it was the breakdown of just kind of the structure of hockey, which is difficult to wrap your head around when you're just kind of like trying to figure out who the organizations are and what's going on and like who reports to who and the governing bodies and the leagues and all that. And I wonder if you could kind of just maybe briefly talk to me about the structure of hockey and like kind of describe what it is and uh, why you thought that was an important piece to include in this book. Basically, a lot of it is because it doesn't make sense. And part of the reason I looked at the structure is because there's so much cross pollination. Most of my background is in NCAA hockey. But especially since I have covered like youth and prep, I know that there are players who will go to major juniors from here. There are players who come from Canadian juniors and play college hockey. So everyone's kind of moving all over the place. So I wanted to take a look at how this all plays together and who's really responsible. And I couldn't figure it out, honestly. I had to like ask people I know who've worked in these organizations and ask tons of people like, what is this? Is this correct? Does it make sense? And that's why I made the little diagram in the book because it's very hard to follow. And I felt that was, it was mostly for me. I was like, okay, this is the best way for me to understand how it doesn't make sense. But the basic point to that is the rules and regulations are not consistent. And just because one governing body will say something like Hockey Canada might say something, it doesn't necessarily mean that players who play in Canada are subject to those rules because you could have players who are not Canadian and are playing major juniors. You could have players who are Canadian playing major juniors, but they're not subject to those rules. And if you look at what's happened with Hockey Canada, if we're thinking about the sexual assault allegations, this was relating to world junior players. But That's a one-off Hockey Canada event every year. It's not like Hockey Canada is developing those players anymore. They belong to major juniors, most of those players, or they're coming from college hockey and playing there. So Hockey Canada might be the one addressing the problem. The CHL is basically saying, hey, we're not responsible. But the CHL has those players for, you know, how many months of the year? Like nine months of the year? And when you have players cross-pollinating and playing in international events or going from one place to the other, it's really easy to pass responsibility. Yeah, I think it was your section. It was about like the OHL, how it like kind of falls under Hockey Canada, but doesn't. So the OHL falls under the Ontario provincial governing body in hockey, which falls under Hockey Canada. But the OHL also is a major junior team and the CHL does not fall under Hockey Canada. So like in that case, I don't know, like if something happened, I don't, who do you go to? I don't know. Yeah, no. And I think it was, um, you spoke to, uh, Courtney, you know, and she kind of talked, makes the point that like, you know, this is kind of by design, right? Like this is a way that, you know, the toxic aspects of this culture is kind of upheld is because it's so hard to navigate any of this. And like, does that kind of ring true for you? That's one of the few quotes from all the interviews we've done that really stood out to me and that I have always remembered because she just said it this is by design. And then it clicked in my head. Oh, that makes so much sense. It was very clarifying for me after she said that. 
But one thing that you kind of pointed out in the book and you um, talk about how like it doesn't really matter that if you come from like the junior majors or the NCAA, you still kind of find the players end up sort of sequestered from the rest of the population. And like one of the ways that that happens is can be through billeting. And I think there's probably other features of that as well. But I wonder if you could kind of walk me through what you mean here. Like, it feels like this is kind of like a important moment in like a young player's kind of career too. And like, you're kind of getting sequestered, just kind of like, what do you, what do you mean by that? And how does that kind of work within the structure of junior hockey or at least junior age hockey? So something else that Courtney Cito pointed out to me was that, you know, we don't ask a child psychiatrist or child psychologist if we should be sending our children away at age 12, because the answer is probably no, we should not be. You know, your brains are not fully developed until you're 25 years old, but, and and kids can billet, honestly, like I've heard of kids billeting as young as 11, more common, probably 16 to 20 when they'd be at that age where they're going to juniors or major juniors. And it's bad in a lot of ways. I mean, okay, it's good because as Ryan Miller pointed out to me, I don't know how you afford to play hockey or to have your kid play hockey. And for some people, it's really not feasible unless they have that option for billeting. But the problem is, is like, it's kind of hit or miss who you get put with. And you don't necessarily know, you know, if you're a player of color, are your, is your built family going to help you deal with racism? Are they, you know, going to be okay doing that? Or are they racist? For anyone else, like are is your billet family, how involved are they going to be? I mean, at the end of the day, if you're playing in the USHL and you're not in high school and you're not in college and you're like 19 years old, most of your time is spent with your team. And that's, you're going to become like them. So by the time most players get to college, because you're usually older, like you're probably around 19 or 20 years old, players are mostly who they are, who they are at that point. The players that I've seen that have been the most malleable are the ones who come in as true freshmen. So they're 18 years old. And those are the ones that I think are easily able to listen and are willing to change, at least from my experience. Um, Or the players that I've known since they were like that age. Because once they get older, it just becomes a lot harder. You're kind of set in your ways. You are who you are. You spent all this time with your teammates. It's just if you're not, they're not being surrounded by the right influences, like they're going to become exactly like them. And, you know, even if they're not, and they don't become like them, I mean, think of how miserable of a situation that must be in, because that's your whole life at that point. It's just your team. I remember talking to one player who told me that his parents made him get a job. They were like, you're not just going to sit at home and like play video games, like hang out with your teammates, because also it limits your exposure to other people, at least in high school. And in college, you're around other people, different people from different backgrounds because of your classes. But if you're out of high school and you're billeting, you're not really. So you're around your billet family and you're around your teammates. It's a perfect situation or a perfect incubator for systemic abuse. And I think if you look at Sheldon Kennedy, that's all you really need to look at. You're isolated from everybody. And when the coach is trusted with that much power and revered in society in that way, The coach can say whatever they want. Everyone's going to believe the coach and no one's going to believe the poor kid or no one's going to help the poor kid or people are just going to look at them and say, oh, that kid's a bad seed. Even at the youth level, Hockey Canada is just starting to come out with better youth safety protection protocols because they were lacking even the most basic ones. But I mean, you have time, you're, you're sequestered away, your family's not there. It's a perfect incubator for systemic abuse.
maybe more broadly, we can talk about just like the insular nature of hockey and how that perpetuates kind of the hockey culture that you guys describe. And like one way that it's manifests is that you'll find players and coaches are just kind of moved through the organizations and the teams, despite having kind of proven track records of whether it's racism, homophobia, sexual misconduct, or actual criminal assaults and or rapes. Um, You make this connection to the Catholic church and that feels more and more correct the more I read about the hockey stuff. And one of the stories that that you reported in 2019, I would love for you to walk me through kind of like what happened there, kind of how that story came to you and then how Hockey East uh, handled it. Because I feel like it does say a lot about how prepared these organizations are to like sort of handle any sort of racist incident. So it was an Indian player and who played for Providence at the time. And there was a player at BC who had directed a slur to him and the referee had heard it. The referee did not assess a penalty during the game, but after the game, the referee wrote a report and sent it to the league and the league didn't do anything. So the rule books, there is a policy against, you know, unsportsmanlike conduct, things like that. But the referee didn't know who said it. And because the referee didn't know who said it, the league couldn't administer punishment, which, all right, fine. My gripe with this was that if you're not going to suspend a player because you don't know who said it, you have to suspend the coach. Someone on the team has to take the punishment. And that didn't happen. And the AD at BC kind of walked in and was like, oh, it's taken care of. And with the league, it was that the league won't ever come forward and say we're investigating this incident because they never do that with anything that requires supplementary review. The reason they'll do it with like a high stick or like a four check or like a headshot is because you can actually see that. Sometimes they'll say it. Usually they'll send out an email saying like so-and-so has been suspended. And they basically went by the rule book as far as they can go. And like, I'll preface this by saying like, I'm a BU alum. Hockey East is my family. I know people there very well. You know, I spoke with the commissioner. I spoke with people at the league and I basically told them, no one else has the benefit of being on the phone with you and hearing how sorry you are. And you're sending the wrong message by not doing anything. They don't have the policies in place to deal with it. The rule book does not have the language to deal with it. Then there should be a rule saying if this is heard or, if, you know, an inappropriate comments heard or something racist or sexist and we don't know who did it, the coach gets punished. Because a big reason why nothing happens is because there's not a policy for it. And it has to be specific to some extent. It can't just be like unsportsmanlike conduct. You know, you had asked about the structure earlier. That comes down to the school. The league can only do so much, right? And the school had a, ch- had a chance to do something too, and they didn't. They kind of swept it under the rug. And it was really disappointing. And that was that. And I mean, it happened again, the Big Ten this year, except the referee actually assessed a penalty when it happened and there was still no punishment given out, which is wild. Like Hockey East, as much as I don't agree with what they did, they at least had a semi-excuse in that they didn't know who said it or they claimed they didn't know who said it. In the Big Ten, the player got a penalty assessed. So you knew who said what, like you knew who said it. I don't know what's really changed in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, and I feel like this is something that like, a lot of these leagues, organizations, institutions like would say right now, if I was to like bring this to them, they would say, no, we do have policies in place and we are doing a lot. And there's a lot of really good campaigns. I think it was the HDA that you quoted in the book that calls it just kind of performative public relations. You know, that there's a lot of these campaigns, big PR things like hockey is for everyone um, that are 
kind of meaningless to the problem. Inkling of belief that hockey is for everyone was actually useful went out the window when the league basically said they're not going to do anything about the whole pride jersey fiasco. They they basically came out there and said, yeah, we're not going to try and change anyone's minds. That's not our job. I was like, well, you have a whole slogan saying you will do it. I mean, it's always been a sham and it's even worse because it's like, oh, now we can pretend we're doing something when we're still not actually doing something. So for years, I've hated it. I would just rather have them not have a slogan at all. It's BS. I think we might have mentioned this in the book, but it really varies by team. What you're going to get depends on where you are and what your who your team is. Like the Canucks do great South Asian nights. The Devils, theirs was terrible and it was a total embarrassment. And I have never been more embarrassed to be a Devils fan, even when they were like the worst team in the league. So it really depends. You know, it's not a uniform thing. Some teams will be great with their theme nights. They'll be really inclusive. Others won't. And I mean, the NHL clearly does not care about educating anyone because they threw that out the window when they decided to not push back against players not wearing pride jerseys. And it's just, I mean, people will always say they're doing things, but usually they're not. And they're just saying something so that you know, people will be satisfied. Well, maybe we can talk like a little bit about some of like the solutions that we get into at the at the end of the book here. Because one of the things that really stood out to me was like the emphasis that you guys put on coaches, which I think is correct. And and the 2019 CBC investigation that found something like 20, 222, I think was the number, amateur coaches that had been um, convicted or charged with sexual offenses. And that the majority of those coaches were hockey. And you guys talked about how there needs to be like a lot more training and oversight, but definitely like more rigorous vetting as well, especially like that, that number really like that shocked me. Um, so maybe could you just like kind of describe what the coaching landscape looks like to you today and like what we need to be thinking about putting in place to move the dial on any of this kind of stuff and like why you think that that's kind of the place to focus on too. So when Hockey Canada kind of said, all right, we're going to make changes and then maybe you'll leave us alone. And then everyone did actually leave them alone and has now since forgotten about it. But one of the things Hockey Canada said they would do is that they would start collecting off ice references for coaches. And I almost had a heart attack because I thought, in all this time, you have never been collecting off-ice references for coaches who are teaching and spending time with the children? Because that's like a basic, 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 basic youth safety precaution. And just there are so many youth safety things that Hockey Canada, USA Hockey have just not been doing. That's a big red flag. And it's, it's wild because it's like you are technically a youth serving organization you handle you'll you deal with children and you're not putting enough effort and thought into who's coaching and i mean part of it goes into the hero worship where if you look at someone like graham james he's well respected because he can win so apparently because he can win he's automatically a good person so we're not going to pay attention to what he's doing because he can win which is stupid or it's because, you know, there's an argument made that there are not enough people out there available to coach. So we can't be picky, which one is wrong. You still have to be picky whether or not you have enough people Two, well, if people are not signing up to coach, then maybe you should think about how you're going to restructure it. If it's too much work, if it's too much commitment, figure out what the problem is and change that because this needs to be a priority. And a big problem is that like hockey is not, I mean, sports in general, but if we're looking at hockey, like in a hockey in Canada, it's a factory. You put kids in and the output is winning and you really don't care about anything else along the way. And that's a big thing, which is why I said this a lot um, 
with Michigan because this year their locker room was way different than it was now that Pearson's gone. And their new coach said like, yeah, we lost. It's tough, but I'm, I'm happy we have what we have. Like, I don't care that we didn't win. He didn't say it like that, but he was basically like, I'd rather have what we've done this season than having that win because they had gone through a lot with the coaching change. They had a player who was hospitalized and had meningitis. Like there were, you know, they had a lot of things that happened. And it was really nice to hear someone say that it doesn't matter that we won because what matters are the people and how they're doing because that's not the outlook that people have. And that's why this can happen. They care about winning. Hence someone like Mitchell Miller is going to get a chance to play hockey again. Safety can't come first. If you're focused more on winning than anything else. There are so many organizations that leagues can work with or governing bodies can work with that focus on youth safety because you need to have coaches who are safe for your kids, who are going to respect them, who are not going to abuse them. You also need coaches who aren't racist and sexist. You mentioned this in the introduction of your book, kind of that hockey really only accepted you or accepts people when they comply with kind of the narrative that it wants to like tell about itself um, and how that can be like kind of a difficult dynamic. So I just like wonder if you want to like say anything about just how your work and career has kind of gone and how you, how your approach to things has changed. I mean, for me, like I can kind of pinpoint my lack of interest in professional hockey to the Chicago Blackhawks and Patrick Kane and that kind of, and as that kind of scandal broke, I just kind of paid less and less attention to the sport. And then I saw, you know, bits and pieces of how we've been talking about like Jonathan Tay's retirement. And I really appreciated um, and thought it really stood in counter to what I, what everything else I was seeing was when you, you tweeted um, that it's kind of like a legacy of silence. Um, and that's the only legacy that we should really be focusing on here. I'm not sure where you want to take that, but anything around kind of um, those two topics, I'd be, I'd be interested in hearing from you. As someone who covers college hockey, a lot of what I do are future stories because we do it freelance. We don't have the time really or the backing to do it investigative or in depth or things like that. And when Trump was elected, kind of sat back and I thought, okay, well, I've contributed a lot to this problem. And I decided I can't do it. I'm not doing it anymore. Like I can't take back the things I didn't say or anything like that, but I can change how I act moving forward. And it was a tough moment for me because when I I was still kind of young, I guess, back then, and I knew that I was really shooting myself in the foot career-wise if I did it. And I had to kind of make a decision is do I want something good for myself or do I want to do the morally correct thing? And for better or for worse, that I was like, okay, I'm going to do what I feel is morally right, regardless of the consequences it's going to have on me. And I mean, again, I was younger. It was really, really hard for me at the time. Um, I remember like crying into my roommate's dog's fur because I was like, now that I've said something about like hockey's culture and how racist it is, like I've basically just killed my whole career. And it's tough because, you know, it's something I'd wanted for a really long time, but I also didn't think I wanted to live with that on my conscience um, because right features and you're doing the same thing as you're propping people up on pedestals and you don't really know anyone enough to know whether they're a good person or not. And I know after I said that there were so many people in college hockey who would not acknowledge my presence, like people who would have talked to me, who did talk to me before just acted like I didn't exist. 
And some people still do to this day. And again, I was younger. So it was really hurtful back then. Um, and it was really hard for me. Now I don't really care. I'm like, I kind of just laugh at them because I'm like, one, you're a total coward. Two, it also says a lot about you, who you are as a person. Like, I didn't even say anything to you specifically. And if you can't even look me in the face, that tells me a lot about you as a person. And it tells me a lot about your background. So I don't really care anymore. Um, at the time I did, but, you know, I just had to keep telling myself, like, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Wicked, but I love it. And there's a song, Defying Gravity, where she's basically like, that's what she's doing. She's trying to take the high road and she's giving up what she wants and she's becoming ostracized because of it. And there's a line where she, uh, what does she say? She's like, something about like, you know, I've lost a lot of people's love, but if this is their love, then I don't want it anyway. You know, this is what it is, which is something I had to keep telling myself because I was younger and more impressionable. And I don't know, it was just... I made that decision and I think it's easier to talk about it now than it was back then for sure. And I mean, that wasn't even that long ago. I feel like in the past few years, it's just changed so much. I see people writing more about it and they're not necessarily facing the consequences that say like Evan and I would have faced when we started talking about it, but you know, for better or for worse, it, it is what I did. And I think at the end of the day, like I, don't think I would have been happy or able to live with it if I hadn't said anything because on the flip side, the people, and this is part of the reason why I'm still in college hockey. Like there are people there who I love with all my heart, who are exceptional human beings who have been with me since day one, who have walked me through the worst moments of my life, who have always been there for me, who will always be there for me. And the best thing is like, they know all of me. So I don't have to pretend that I'm not upset about this, this, and this. They know everything and they still love me despite of it or because of it. And they still support me and they support all of me. So that's totally worth it because for whatever I lost, the relationships that I did have have become so much more enriching. That's your episode of Commons. We have a new season coming soon. Keep an eye on your feeds in October. If you like this episode, please give us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Jordan, at Candleland.com. This episode was produced by me, Nora Azrea, and Archie Mann. Our managing editor is Annette Ejiofor. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglazi, and our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Candleland merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to candleland.com slash join.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.